Savior, and so much to be thankful for. Um, we had our missions conference weekend, Friday night and Saturday, and just at the end of it, um, we had so many good things said and um, so much challenge and encouragement through it all, and I couldn't help but at the end of it just to be humbled that a little church in Athens, Georgia, uh, that meets in a basement can be part of so much of what the Lord is doing and locally and globally. Um, and just powerful and just so so thankful and humbled and it's you know it's not something for us to to be prideful about um, but it is something for us to give thanks for and just to to be on our, our faces before God and say thank you um, for giving us more than we deserve you know in every way um, and Lord help us to be good stewards and and let us not just think, well, this is all the Lord can do, but even be anticipating more and more. And just from last week, um, Luke chapter 12, we're in Luke chapter 12, as we're going right through the book, um, in verse 32, we finished up with these these verses at the end here. Last week, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where ne- no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And just we talked about a couple things last week that are really important about that. Um, as leading up to that, Jesus is telling his disciples, you know, understand life can be really short. Don't just focus on what is here and now, but focus on the things that matter and that last into eternity. And don't be anxious about your life and don't be anxious about your stuff. But remember, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How powerful is that? And we know the kingdom of God is something that is here now and is to come. We have it. We don't have it in all of its fullness, but we do have it even here and now. And so in light of that, we're told to live our lives for what matters in a way that counts. And he says, you know, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. And we didn't get to talk too much about that last week. But, you know, just suffice it to say, for any one of our lives or for any human being's life, you can, you can see where a person spends their time and how a person spends their money. And you can find out pretty easily and quickly what that person loves. Show me where you spend your time, show me where you spend your money, and we'll easily see, we'll all see what you, what you love. And that's not something that's really debatable. It's just a reality. So that, that's how we check our hearts. We look at our time, we look at our finances, and we can check our hearts pretty quickly you know, on that. Is it a, am I building my kingdom? Is it, is it about, about me, or is it about God and his kingdom? Um, let's go ahead and read verses um, 35 through 40. We'll pray and then we'll, we'll roll right into it. He says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they, 
may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. And you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege to look into your word. And we're thankful that you have made sinners like me holy because of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And Jesus, as we look at the words that you spoke, we pray that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would fill this place and fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us discernment and wisdom and understanding and help us to take you seriously, dear Jesus, as the greatest teacher of all eternity and help us to seek understanding at your feet. We would humble ourselves before you. We would be under your authority. In Jesus, it's in your precious name that we ask it. Amen. So he says, stay dressed for action, or yours uh, might say, you know, gird your loins, which was, you know, the, the dress in these days was a little bit different. Um, you know, I think more comfortable than the pants or jeans that you might be wearing um, this morning, um, but it was a little more flowing. But if you had to run or if you had to do some physical activity that was going to be strenuous, you know, that could kind of get in the way and you could end up tripping up over yourself and, you know, those sort of things. So, you know, you kind of pull those things up and wrap up with a belt and, you know, now you're ready for, for work. And so Jesus says to stay, you know, to stay dressed for action, to keep your lamps burning, to keep the lights on. He says to be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast. So you have this idea that these servants in this house are waiting for their master to come back and their master is out, you know, at a party. And, you know, we don't know exactly how this party is going to go. We don't know if it's going to be not that great of a party, kind of a short party. Or we don't know if it's going to be a really good party and, you know, you guys are going to stay out late. You can come rolling back in at, you know, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. We don't know what part, type of party it is. But Jesus says they should be ones who are waiting. So that when he comes, they may open the door at once. You know, when he knocks, they can open the door at once and let him in. But now, this is what's really radical because we expect... To, I believe we expect to read this because servants are one who serve their masters. We're expecting, you know, the master to come in and, they, you know, they take off his shoes and his sandals and they're going to wash his feet and they're going to, you know, give him something to eat if he needs it and they're going to have his bed ready and they're going to do all this work for him and then the master's just going to, you know, chill and go to sleep, right? But that's not what we read at all. We read... He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service. You know, he's going to take off his party clothes and put on his work clothes. And he's going to have his servants recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. Man, you know, we think about this with Jesus. Because he didn't just say these words, he lived these words. You think of the Last Supper with his disciples when he went and washed the feet of his disciples. He washed their feet. 
He washed their feet. You know, and you think about that, you know, Jesus saying when, when, the, when the king comes back, he's going to come and he's going to serve his people. He's the one who already went to the, you know, as we look at it back now, you know, back into history, we see that he's the Messiah who came, who died on the cross for our sins and who rose from the dead. And he did all the work then and we're anticipating his return. But then when he comes, he actually is going to come and he's going to serve us. Gives a little bit of an idea. As, you know, Book of Revelation talks about you know, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the one who, is, who it's all about is, is actually one who here Jesus describes himself as serving. As one who serves. It's powerful. And he says if he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. And then he kind of switches it up a little bit because he, then he uses a, a different um, illustration. He talks about a, a person who's in their house, a master's in his house, and you know, if a thief's come, if he knows what hour the thief is coming, he's going to be prepared and ready. He's not going to let the thief steal his stuff. He wouldn't let his house be broken into. And then he uses it to say, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And we know that you know, Jesus can come at any time. The return of the king can happen at any moment. And so we, we live in this expectation. This, this, we're to live in this you know, place of expectation. And you know, here's the thing. Now, this is a, this is a parable. It's a, it's a story, and it's designed to teach us spiritual truths. Um, and we have to understand that because, as, as, you know, especially being younger, you know, as a kid, hearing this story, it's like, wait, so I'm supposed to stay up all night for Jesus. I'm not supposed to sleep. But... If I stay up all night tonight, and tomorrow's going to be rough, but then, you know, I can stay up all night the next night, but then, you know, eventually, Jesus, I can't stay awake anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall asleep. You know, you, you have to understand that what, what's, he, what's the point of what he's telling us. He's not telling us, well, disciples of Jesus, which I want you to know, before you start following Jesus, you'll never sleep again. <laughs> you know, that, that's not true. Now, it might be you'll sleep less. Because there's nights when you're going to need to spend time, much time in prayer. And there's times we're going to be need to work for the Lord when it's not convenient for your schedule. And there's going to be a price to pay and you're going to be tired. That might all be true. But Jesus is not telling us that, you know, you'll never sleep. But he's saying in your spirit, you're to have an expectation of the return of Jesus. And you're not to become lazy. You're not to live your life just reclined saying, well, Jesus might come back at some point, but, you know, won't be anytime soon, so I can just chill. That's not what our perspective is supposed to be. We are t- supposed to live our lives in a state of readiness, a state of alertness, and being about our master's work, our king's work, so that we're ready. So we have this Eager anticipation. And it's so awesome to know that the one that we're waiting for is good. And we've seen him serve. You know, when he was here on the earth, we see the historical record of his service. And we see the ultimate service that he gave at the cross. And we see when he comes again, even as king, he's going to continue to serve. And wow, what a privilege to call him our king. So now we go to verse 41. 
And now Peter asked this question. He says, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for all of us, for us or for all? So basically saying, you know, is this just for, you know, the, you know, us close 12, you know, disciples or is this for everybody? And Jesus doesn't come out and say, it makes it a little more difficult to, for us to understand. Jesus doesn't come out and say specifically, this is for X. But I think that we can get that it's a broader application based on his answer. Because the Lord uses this. He, he, he tells another story to teach it. He says, the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And for him to whom much they entrusted much, they will demand the more. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Jesus here is going to talk about four types of servants. In verses 42 through 44, you have the faithful servant. He's responsible with the small things of the kingdom that he's given now. He's faithful over that stewardship. And when the king returns, in this case the master of the house returns, he finds him doing his work well. And what's he going to do? He's going to give him more responsibility. He's going to bless him. and He's going to give him more. But then he has an... You know, that's, that's the first servant, and let's just make it really clear from the get-go, that's the servant we want to be. You don't want to be one of these next three. This is the one you and I want to be and need to strive to be. It's also interesting that you know, you're going to give him, be given more responsibility in the kingdom and, and heaven that you know, even from the beginning, before there was sin in the earth and God put you know, Adam and even the garden, you know, there was work to do. And work was good, and it didn't have the association of curse with it. So it didn't have some of the problems that come with it today. But work itself is a good thing and can be redeemed for God's glory and honor. And, you know, it's something we're going to get to, we should look forward to doing in the future. You know, this idea that, you know, heaven, you know, is a place where you're going to sit around with a cloud, and you're going to have this harp, and you're going to play it for all of eternity, and that's what that is. You know, it's so foreign to what the scripture teaches. I mean, that's just, a, that's just a ridiculous fairy tale. But, you know, we're, we're going to get to do work, and we should look forward to that. That's, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. If we're faithful. But now notice the second one. He says to himself, he's not coming anytime soon, and I can do what I want. And he's got this responsibility over others, and so he beats them. He treats them harshly, and he gets drunk. You know, he's, he's basically living for himself. Now, what it, Jesus says here is, now this, remember, this is Jesus talking. I, I, this isn't me. This isn't any other person. This is Jesus says 
The master is going to come and he's going to cut that dude into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And, and that's, you know, if you're using the ESV, it says unfaithful, New King James, unbelievers, but that's the idea is those who don't believe in Jesus, they don't have Jesus. And so what does, that, what does that mean? I think what we see and what we see in the whole of Scripture is that there are a group of people who you know, make claim to Jesus in word. You know, they make claim to be a follower of God, but they are far from him. They're not actually his. They are, you know, they're, they're disguised as servants. They are, as the Scripture talks about, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. And their true character is revealed by their actions. Because again, anybody can talk a good game. But the true character is revealed by how you know, he treats these, these others that he's responsible for and that he's just you know, living to eat and to drink and to get drunk. Heart is far from God. But Jesus' response for, to that is... Is really harsh, really harsh. It's just the, this is what the scripture tells us. And then he says about verse three: "There's a servant who knows what's right to to do. He knows the will of God, but he doesn't do it, and he receives a severe beating. And then there's the one who doesn't know and did wrong, and then receive a light beating. Now these are a little bit harder to figure out." And I'm not going to be extremely dogmatic about, you know, how this, this works. I can tell you, don't, again, you don't want to be either of these dudes. The, the easiest thing to do is just to be servant. The best thing to do is just to be, not the easiest, but the best thing to do, just be the first servant, and you don't have to worry in, you know, so much detail um, about these letter two. There's a couple of different <coughs> options. One is that, you know, these are examples of two different servants. One, uh, that they are unbelievers but they have a different levels of understanding and knowledge about God, and therefore their punishment you know, in hell would be different according to their, what they were exposed to in terms of the will of God and you know, understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to say, not to emphasize so much on the, the, the physical act of the beating, but that the idea has to do um, with the loss of reward. You know that they're they're gonna what they have is gonna be stripped from them. Um, that they're they are saved. That they're believers. Um, as it talks about in Corinthians, there's a, a group of people. You know who it's like that their works were evaluated. These are believers, and some are, have silver and gold, and others have stray and you know straw and stubble. And so the silver and gold, you know, it it passes the test, and that good work, you know, makes it through, and it's a a blessing for that person. It's part of their, their crown that they can be, you know, put back at the feet of Jesus in thanksgiving. But then it talks about those who um, make it through, but as though through fire, meaning you know, that the, their works were tested and it turned out to be stray, straw and stubble and it just burned up you know, into nothingness. And yes, they were saved, but they don't have that joy of a life well-lived to put their crowns before Jesus. Again, I'm not going to be dogmatic about which interpretation you should go with this morning, but just plead with each one of us, let's not be these guys. 
Let's not be these guys. But do understand the more you've been given, the more is required of you. And that is a true principle for unbelievers and for believers. You know, there's more responsibility for the person who's, you know, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, a hundred times. And in your life, if you know Jesus and, you know, you've, you've had, you know, think about this. In our context, you have access, you know, to the full word of God. You have access to, you know, really good books and really good teaching. And you have, you know, you have access to a community of faith that will, you know, wants to encourage you and to help you grow. And you have opportunities that abound in our culture and, you know, free society to share your faith with, you know, very little repercussion. And you got, you know, some person who believes in Jesus and they've just barely heard about him and they, they don't get followed up with, with good teaching and they don't have the word of God in their own language. And, you know, are they as responsible as you? To walk faithfully with the Lord, you know, step by step. It's like, you know, of, of all people, we have no excuses. You know, let's, you know, we can kind of, we just need to kind of get off the excuse train. You know, and that's a big thing in our society and our culture is just like, you know, everything can be blamed on somebody else. Regardless of one's position, regardless of what one, you know, has. It's like, I can always find a way to shift it to where it really wasn't my fault. can always put it to the hypocrites that came before me or to the family that I grew up in or to whatever else, you know, you, you just name the list. You know, you just, you just go down the list of whatever else you want to blame. But we, we, gotta, we have to get off the excuse train and say, you know, and get on the responsibility train. I'm responsible. And, I, and I'll say this to myself, I, of all people, have no excuse for screwing up. I have no excuse. I've been taught the scriptures since I was you know, a little dude. I have no excuse. Okay. Now let's move on to 49. And we thought the words of Jesus were harsh there, and they were, but they're, he's going he's gonna to up to Annie. A little bit. Verse 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. And they will be divided, father against son, and son against father, and mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Whoa. Whoa. Like, that's intense. That is intense. You know, Jesus says he's, you know, he's going to cast fire on the earth. He says he wishes it was already kindled. But then he says he has a, baptize, a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is his distress until it's accomplished? What is that baptism? That's an illusion. He's going to the cross. And he has distress. He has a burden that he is carrying with him in his ministry day by day because he knows what is coming. 
He knows he's going to the cross, and he's just not going to die a physical death there, but he's going to take on the sins of the whole world on his shoulders there at the cross as a one-time sacrifice for all. That, I mean, there's nothing heavier that's ever been carried. But then he asked this question, do you think that I've come to give peace on the earth? And, you know, we might answer, well, Jesus, you know, we heard the angel's announcement at your, you know, at your birth. Peace on earth. And we heard you, you know, in the temple. Sorry, not in the temple, but in, in the synagogue. When you talked about, you know, your purpose um, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, you said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know, Jesus, aren't you here proclaiming the, the year of the Lord's favor? And yet you tell us, you ask this question, do you think I came to give peace on the earth? And we would say, yes, Lord. But then Jesus says back to us, no, I tell you, but rather division. And he talks about even in the same house, there will be two against three or three against two. So how do we reconcile these things? That Jesus comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, that peace on earth, goodwill toward men. How do we reconcile that with Jesus saying, no, I tell you, but rather division? How do we reconcile these things? I believe John the Baptist in his prophecy about Jesus in Matthew 3, 11 and 12, he tells us how these things are reconciled. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He has two types of baptisms. One is the Holy Spirit, one is fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now we need to understand in this that this is, you know, when they have the wheat and the chaff, you know, they would harvest all of this together, and they go, you know, and, and take this thing called a, a winnowing fork. There's, you know, this fork they would put into the wheat and the chaff, and it would separate it because the wheat is heavier and it would fall to the ground. And the chaff, you know, would blow off into a little distance, but you'd have, at the end of it, you know, this pile of chaff. You know, it's been separated now from the wheat, and what's it good for? It's good for nothing except for to be burned up. And so what Jesus is saying is that, I mean, ultimately, he came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's one to give salvation and to give judgment. He has both of those roles. And we need to understand, again, th- throughout those scriptures, we have the, you know, the preference of God of, of mercy. You know, you're reading the prophets. You went with God pleading you know, with the nation of Israel that you would repent. We're going to come up um, not long from now in our studies in the, in the book of, of Luke with, with Jesus um, weeping over Jerusalem at their lack of repentance. And so, you know, we need to understand that when people are divided, you know, and and some are for Jesus and some are against Jesus, whose responsibility that that is, ultimately?
because we see that it's those, as John says in John chapter 3, who love darkness rather than light. Ultimately, we can say two things are true. One is that Jesus is a divider because it's on him that people either go with him or against him. So in that sense, he is the divider. But those who are being divided are the ones who hate the light. And so they're responsible for having hated the light. So here's a question that we have to ask because it's a question that people do have to wrestle with all over the world today, including in our community. There are people who have to wrestle with this reality. Would you follow Jesus if your own family was against him? Would you still follow him if your own family was against him? Some of you are in that situation And you've answered, yes, I would follow Jesus. Because you know he's the way, the truth, and the the life. So what what we do is we pray for unity in your family to have a common faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's our that's our hope, that's our desire, that's the end to which we we pray. But if it's necessary, it's better to be divided by the truth than to be united in a lie. Yeah, I don't want us to be fooled by this because, you know, in our culture, we've been lied to and we've been taught that, you know, unity is the highest value. And you don't even have to have true reconciliation. We can just have this, like, illusion. It's really the illusion of unity is the highest value. Let's just pretend we all love each other. We don't actually have to. We can just pretend it. And that's certainly adequate in our world. But that's not our highest objective. Unity is not something that we strive for at any cost. We strive for the glory of God, and we strive for the love and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ at any cost. That's our highest value is the glory of God. That Jesus Christ himself is our highest value. And we know that he is truth and his word is truth. And so it's the love and truth that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what we hold at highest value. Now, the scripture does tell us, especially in the church, you know, to be unified. To be unified. Like that's a call. That's a command. That's something we've got to strive for. But we, and we're willing to pay a high price for unity but we're not, again, we're not willing to pay any price. Just any price. We will not pay a price that causes us to be united in a false gospel. We hold to what Jesus said about himself, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. You know, if that's not your reality, you're making your own gospel And that gospel can make people feel good here and now, but ultimately it's going to lead those who teach it and their followers to destruction. 
So yeah, it's a feel-good gospel at the moment, but it's not a feel-good gospel in eternity. And so we, you know, we have to understand that, yes, we want unity. We want unity in your family in the name of Jesus Christ. We want unity in the church. But there are points, there's even points in, in our church's history where with a, you know, a family or an individual, we have been heartbroken because we haven't been able to have unity because there was a desire for the gospel to be changed. That Jesus isn't the way, the truth, and the life anymore. He is a way, a truth, a life. And we could not afford to be united in that lie, because if we were united in that lie, we would ultimately be united in nothingness. It would all be an illusion. It would all be a game that was played that may make people, you know, have smiles on their faces and happy to be in the same room, but at the cost of heartbreak for our Father. And that we are not willing to do. We just aren't. We can't. We can't. We have to stay true to our Father and to our Savior, our King. Verse 54, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present time. Now, most of us today um, couldn't tell you too much. I mean, we might be able to figure out a little bit in terms of weather patterns, but we're very dependent on you know, our apps. And we look and go, okay, what's the weather? What's the forecast going to be? Tomorrow, should I have a jacket or not have a jacket? Do I need an umbrella and not need an umbrella? You know, we, we look at that. And, and, and for us, you know, we even think it's kind of less important because, you know, oftentimes we're going to go from a house to a vehicle into another building. So, you know, if I'm uncomfortable for a couple minutes in between those air-conditioned environments, not that big a deal. But, you know, these people needed to be more prepared because, you know, they, weren't, they did not regulate their environments to the extent that we are capable of today. But he's telling them they're hypocrites. He says, you, you, you're aware, you're more aware of the weather than you are of the spiritual reality that's happening in your midst. And certainly at this time, that's a key thing because, I mean, Jesus is there with them on the earth. I mean, of any, the Messiah is there. Of any time to be aware, it's then. But I do wonder what Jesus would say to us today when we're more aware of what's happening in sports and music and movies than we are about the spiritual state of our world and what God is doing in it. If you can, tell, if you can say more about what's happening with the Kardashians than you can about what's happening in Syria... That's sinful. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. That's sinful. That should, I mean, that should not be the case. And of course you can pray for the Kardashians. I'm not, you know, in any way opposed to that. But, our world is on fire. You know, there are, there are, significant things that are happening 
all over the world. And, you know, I know that our tendency can be, you know, it's, I'm overwhelmed. It's overwhelming. I mean, you know, we've got, you know, work and then, you know, activities or family things and, you know, all of this stuff. And, you know, how can I keep up? And, again, I ask the question, okay, well, you know, how much TV do you watch? How much reading do you have to do that's not reading your Bible? You know, I mean, you have some time, you use some time in some ways that's disposable. And so, again, as we talked about earlier, let's get off the excuse train and get on the responsibility train because I have a responsibility to know and to pray about what's happening in the world and what God is doing in the world today. You know, um, when Philip was talking about uh, yesterday about how God is, is moving, um, you know, in the Middle East and how so many people are coming to know Jesus, and yet that's something that, you know, we can end up not knowing anything about. When we should be involved in, especially with all the turmoil happening there and the persecution of Christians that's happening there and all these things, you know, we should be praying about those things and engaged. The amazing thing about prayer in the day and age, I mean, we, we, we are so privileged. I know it's a burden in some ways, but, but instead of looking at a burden, how about looking at it as a privilege? Because you're in a, in a, living a time where communication flows more freely than, and quickly than it ever has. And because it's always been true that through prayer, we have access to influence events anywhere in our world. Because we have access to the holiest of holies because of the blood of Jesus. So that what that means is that while you may not be able to go into Syria and do something today, maybe the Lord calls somebody in here to do that, but irregardless, every one of us has the ability to take part in the spiritual warfare happening in the heavenly realms there even now. You can fight. You can fight for what is right and what is good and what is holy and just. And you can, you can usher in the gospel of Jesus Christ into those places through the power of prayer. Because the scripture says Elijah was a man like we are and, and you know, he, needed to see, he wanted to see some change in his nation and he prayed that there would be a time of God's judgment to wake the people up. And so he prayed for, that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three years. And then he prayed again, and it rained. And, it was, and, and James, it tells us, he was just a man like you and me. So your prayer is powerful, and you can beseech the Almighty to work. <laughs> Verse 57, he says, Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. And I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And again, he uses a very basic you know, Ill, you know, human illustration of, hey man, especially if you're in the wrong, settle before you go to court, because it's going to be a whole lot 
better for you just to humble yourself and to admit that you were wrong and to pay up than it will be for you to go to court and then, you know, even in these times, it's almost like a debtor's prison. You got this debt, but you're in prison. You can't pay it. It's this kind of this revolving, you know, terrible thing. So he says, don't get involved with that. You don't have to be involved with that. Don't get involved with that. Humble yourself. Make peace. How much more with God, who ultimately is the judge, and Jesus talks about himself being the judge, how much more is the call for people in our world today to make peace with God while they still can? And we're moving into 13. We don't have much more, so just please hang with me a few more minutes. He says, there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? These Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here some people come to Jesus and they say, hey, wait, you hear what Pilate did? And Pilate did a lot of terrible things against the Jewish people. But in this instance, it seems like there were some Galileans, and some of Galileans had a reputation of some, you know, stirring up some trouble. But they're there, you know, at the temple making their sacrifices. And while they're making their sacrifices, Pilate has some of them executed. And so when he has them executed, their blood is, you know, mingled with their sacrifices. And to them, you know, it's, it's, it's this outrage. It's outrage at the injustice. It's outrage at the murder. It's outrage at the desecration of the temple and, you know, of the sacrifices that they would normally make. But Jesus, you know, Again, he answers in a way that they don't expect because what they're expecting in that point is a condemnation of Pilate and of Roman authority and of the atrocities that have been committed against their people. And yet Jesus flips it on them, as he always does. He gets to the hearts of the people that he's talking to. He doesn't engage in this debate that's at a different level where, they, where these people want to t- have the conversation go, Jesus is a master at taking the conversation where it needs to go. And for these men, it needs to go to their own hearts and where they stand before God. And so he asks them the questions. He says, so do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? The answer to that is no. And then he talks about you know, the tower that fell over. And Solomon says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Again, the answer is no. And it's interesting, what, what Jesus is kind of getting at here is not why did they die, but rather why are you still alive? Because in reality, everyone deserves death, Period. Why, why are you still here is kind of the question that Jesus is getting at with these guys. Because you could have been one of those 18 that the tower fell on, or you could have been one of those Galileans who was 
there given your sacrifice and gotten executed? Why are you still here? Well, while you're here, you have this opportunity to repent, to turn from your false beliefs, to turn to believing in Jesus and following him, to turn from their sin and to follow Jesus. Because there is this understanding that this belief in Jesus is going to cause a life change. The person is not going to live the exact same way after coming to Jesus they did before coming to him. That Jesus is going to make them a new creation and that he's going to radically transform that individual's life. That's the expectation. That there will be a radically transformed life. Now, it might take some time, the fullness of time, to see the fullness of that radical transformation. And it ultimately is all going to be made you know, when we see him face to face, the fullness of that transformation completed. But even in the meantime, we should be able to see the difference that Jesus makes in the life of a believer. If there's no difference, then there's a question. Is there, was there really faith in Jesus to begin with? That's an important question to deal with. Because as we've seen, as Jesus is talking here, and as we see in our world today... You know, even some of the statistics that we looked at this weekend, Christianity, Christendom, you know, is this, you know, kind of this massive, broad term that encompasses, you know, many, many people. But that's not a reflection of what the actual numbers are on those who have faith in Jesus. And it's not really, you know, possible for us to know exactly what those numbers are because, you know, it's not our responsibility to walk around and go, faith, not faith, faith, not, you know, and try to, like, mark people down or not. But we know that it's not what those bigger numbers tell us. And we know that from the scripture, even. And so, but there needs to be this expectation that Jesus has that there's going to be a repentance and there's going to be a turning from the person one used to be to the person that they are now as a follower of him. And you see the people that Jesus took, even as his disciples, you know, and even one of them wasn't a true believer as Judas betrayed him. So even one of them was not a true believer. But you look at the difference that Jesus made in somebody like Matthew or in somebody like Peter, even though it took a long time for Peter to fully get it, you know, even after he identifies Jesus as the Christ, he still shrinks away under the pressure of, you know, right before Jesus goes to the cross. He still has to be confronted about his hypocrisy by the Apostle Paul and his relation to the Gentiles. So he still had issues. He still had things to deal with. And may that give you some encouragement today. If you still have some issues, you still have some fear, you still have some stuff, some junk in your life that God's not done with you and he'll keep working on you. But the thing about Peter that we see is that when he's confronted with his sin or with his failures, he repented. You know, he turns from it. He humbles himself before Jesus. Even his relationship, you know, with the Apostle Paul, he changed his behavior once, you know, he was confronted with the reality that he wasn't acting in a godly way toward those people. Man, it's got to be an encouragement to us because there's going to be a point in time in your life if a brother or sister loves you that they're going to sit down with you and say, brother or sister, I love you in Jesus and what is up with this in your life? 
And you're going to have a point of decision to make at that point. You're either going to get angry and say, don't tell me about that. Don't talk to me about that. I'm content to be where I am. Or you will humble yourself and you will say thank you and you will get on your knees before Jesus and say, Jesus, change my heart about that. I need your healing. I need your comfort. I need you to change me. It's one or the other with those situations. And I'm going to tell you, if in the last six months somebody has not come up to you and said, brother or sister, I love you, here's something that needs to change in your life. Where's love? And perhaps it's because you've put up a barrier that says, don't confront me about anything. And perhaps that has to go away before people are going to be willing to do that. A great step, something any of us can do today, you can walk up to another brother or sister in Christ and say, brother, I give you, or sister, I give you permission, and I ask you to speak truth into my life. I ask you to seek what God even shows you about me. And I give you permission to point out what doesn't please him. Something that I might not be able to see because I'm in too deep. But I give you permission in my life when I'm wrong to tell me. You can ask somebody, will you love me enough to tell me the truth? about myself. I give you permission to do it. Man, you, you talk about freedom? Because now there can be a free communication. And no, not that it's not always going to be easy. Not that there's not going to be a pro, ever a problem with that. But man, now we've got freedom. I'm thankful for brothers I have in my life who have that freedom. The only thing that I would say is I want them to execute, you know, to to use that freedom some more. I want them to use that freedom some more. We'll wrap up with this in verses 6 through 9. He says, And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. We see God's patience. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, echoes this. 2 Peter 3.9 For God is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so we have time, or we've had time, to put it that way, to turn and to make things right with God. There will come a point, just like with this fig tree, where it's, okay, we've given it enough time. We've been extra patient. It's already had plenty of time for the fig tree to produce and to produce fruit. Now we're going to give it some more time, and we're even going to give it some extra special attention and care to see if it will produce some fruit. But after that, if it doesn't, we've got to do what we've got to do. You know, and, and really, Jesus did give a real invitation for the nation of Israel at this point for the kingdom. And we see there's patience there 
and then there is actually a you know a temporal you know in between judgment that happens you know about AD 70 with the destruction of the Jerusalem destruction of the temple and so but there was time for them as the fig tree to produce good fruit and they had the 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 right fertilizer they had the word of god they had you know all this access but you know for application for us today we've got two applications one is for those who don't have jesus yet and that application is very simple one simple word repent like turn from your false beliefs turn from your sin get to the feet of jesus and say jesus save me you know and that's really what we're asking people to do we can use you know other terminology i don't use the word repent very much when i'm talking to people who don't know jesus i tend to just define it you need to turn from what you believed in before you need to that's what repentance is. You know, you need to turn from your false beliefs. You need to turn from the things that you've done that are wrong, from your, what the Bible calls sin. You know, you need to turn from that, and you need to turn to trust in Jesus, that he is a true and living God, that he is Savior. You know, this is what you, this is what you need to do, and that's our call to share in the world while there is time to do that. And we need to have some courage, you know, with that. Uh, we were at a conference, um, Michael and Derek and I were at a conference a few days ago, and uh, went to a little breakout group on millennials. And here's just an encouraging thing. You know, it's about 22 to 35, and probably those in college now aren't that much different than that. But when asked if they would be willing to hear somebody share their faith with them, 90% said yes. Yes, I'd be willing to listen. Well, that should encourage, if you, I mean, nine out of ten times, somebody say, yes, I'll listen to your story. I'll listen to your, you know, what, what, what God's done in your life. That should give some encouragement with that. My generation, a little bit more difficult. Boomers, a little bit more difficult. You know, going to say no more often. But I was amazed that, you know, all the sticks on that were over 50%. So it's over half the time you ask somebody if you can tell the story of what God's done in your life, they're going to say yes. Like, why aren't we just all the time saying, hey, here's what God's done in my life? Because we've got this lie that says that people aren't interested and they don't want to know anything about that. As Jimbo talked about, the truth being protected by a bodyguard of lies. And so there's that lie that says, People don't want to know. People don't want you know, to hear. But the reality is that there are people who will listen. And what if you asked 100 people if you could tell them about God's great love and only one of them said yes, would it still be worth doing? According to Jesus, as he seeks for the lost sheep, Jesus says, yes, it's worth it. We have to agree with that, too, and not be discouraged that it's Worth it for one because it was worth it for you. It was worth it for me. Second application is simple. Be the first servant. Be one who bears good fruit. Be who one who's responsible with the stewardship that we have been given. Get off the excuse train and get onto the responsibility train that God has given you that responsibility. The awesome thing about it is that we don't even have to do this in our own strength and power. These are a couple of verses one of the brothers shared with us at that event in Colossians 1, 
just really encouraged me, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, about Jesus. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's about availability. It's about just saying, Jesus, you can use my life how you want to. Because it's going to be in his energy that he powerfully works within you. You don't even have to come up with the energy yourself. Jesus supplies it. You don't have to come up with the Savior. Jesus is. You don't have to come up with the message or the task. Jesus has already given it. You don't have to come up with the energy to even do it because Jesus will give it to you. All you have to do is just be willing. Say, Jesus, use my life. That's it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. Lord Jesus, um, your words are powerful. They are true. They are sometimes hard for us to hear. But help us to be willing to hear them. Help us to hear from you. And that we will lay our lives down before you and say, Jesus You can have it. Don't let me stay where I am. Continue to change me in my heart. Use my brothers and sisters in Christ to keep changing, creating that opportunity for change in my life. Work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Dear Jesus, we beg you for your glory and for your honor. And as we take the bread and that cup, we remember that our salvation came at a great price. So we take it and we say thank you, Jesus, in your precious name.